Good morning. My name is Brandon, as he said, uh, one of the pastors here, and we are in a series in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the uh, second book in the Bible. It goes Genesis and then Exodus, so this is the very beginning of the story. Exodus means uh, a going out or a departure, and the story of Exodus is the story of Israel, the nation, the people of God in the Old Testament being brought out or delivered out from slavery and oppression in Egypt. And in week one, uh, of our series in Exodus, we said that, uh, that Exodus wasn't just a story, that it was our story, and as our story, it was written for our instruction. But more specifically, uh, when the New Testament, the, which is the part of the Bible that comes after Jesus, when the New Testament looks back on the events of the Exodus, the story of the Exodus, it says that the events of the Exodus, they took place as examples, examples for us, that we might not fall into the same idolatry that Israel did. The story of Exodus is there written, uh, captured for us to guard us from falling into the same idolatries that Israel did. So what is idolatry? I think the most helpful definition that I found is from Tim Keller, a retired pastor in New York, uh, who said like this, he said, when anything, anything, even a good thing, becomes the ultimate thing, it's an idol. When anything in your life, even a good thing in your life, becomes the ultimate thing in your life, it becomes an idol. It becomes the thing that you have to have, the thing that you can't live without. It becomes an idol. And here's the thing about idols, all idols. They are deceitful. They make promises. The promise of an idol is this. If you have me, you will have the life that you want. If you have me, you will have the life that you want. So if we just take money, sex, marriage, all good things, but when money, sex, or marriage become the ultimate thing, the thing that I have to have in my life, you have bought into the lie that to have the good life, what the philosophers have always called the good life, the life that everyone wants, you have to have this thing. And here's what idols do. They harden your heart to everyone and everything else. So for example, uh, if money is the idol, if money is the thing that I have to have in my life, if you don't have it, you'll be angry with God, likely angry with everyone else, at least short fuse with everyone else, and people, relationships will become transactional. They will become a means to get what I don't currently have so I can have the life that I don't currently have. Or, maybe more dangerous, if you do have it, you won't find God necessary and people will become secondary to your success. But either way, these are examples of a hardened heart, a heart that has grown soft to an idol and then hard to everyone and everything else. And our text today, our text today is going to look at the last events before the 10 plagues, the last events before God is going to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians. And it centers on an Egyptian king, an Egyptian king whose heart had become hardened. And while our text is about an Egyptian king, the language of our text, the language of a hardened heart gets used later in the Bible. And it gets used to give us, you and me, a serious and a sober warning. But we will get to that when we get to that. For now, let's start in Exodus 7. Exodus 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. 
No, let's stop there because I know that is confusing language and I don't want to be hung up on this. Um, make you like God to Pharaoh. Make you a God to Pharaoh. What's, what's going on here? So in Egypt, Pharaoh was considered a deity. He was considered a deity. He was considered to be a God. And this was God putting Moses on equal footing. It was a statement of authority in Egypt. A statement of authority, which we will see is going to come back up and a theme that's going to come back up as we keep going. So let's read verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So Moses, Aaron, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Go and tell him to let my people go, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he will not listen to you. So let me, let me define hardened heart here, because a hardened heart, this was a Hebrew idiom that the uh, ancient Israelites, when they heard hardened heart, they would have heard resolute, stubborn, unmovable, hardened. But this language of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, this has sparked a centuries-old debate. And the debate goes like this, did God do this to Pharaoh, or did Pharaoh do this to himself? And the, the question underneath it, or the objection that sits underneath the debate is this, that, that if God were to do this to somebody, I'm, I'm not sure that that's the kind of God that I want to worship, or that uh, he's maybe not as loving as the God that I picture in my mind. And so to understand what's happening here, I, I think it would be helpful if we saw a word play that's happening in the book of Exodus. So this word hardens, this is not the first time that it shows up in the book of Exodus, it showed up one time before in, I believe, chapter 4, speaking of Pharaoh with his hardened heart, but that's also not the first time that the, the Hebrew word, root word for hard or hardened shows up in the book of Exodus. The first time it shows up, it's not in reference to Pharaoh. The first time it shows up is back in chapter 1 in verses 13 and 14, where it says, So they, they being the Egyptians under the direction of Pharaoh, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter and hard. There's the root word. There's the first time it shows up. Made their lives bitter and hard. Made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. See, here's the point. Here's what we see in this word play from Exodus 1 to Exodus 7 is that God wasn't doing anything to Pharaoh that Pharaoh wasn't doing to Israel. Point being this, God wasn't doing anything to Pharaoh's heart that wasn't already in Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to say that one again. God wasn't doing anything to Pharaoh's heart that wasn't already in Pharaoh's heart. That's why one commentator put it like this. He said, it's clear that God does not make Pharaoh evil. Pharaoh is evil in and of himself. What God simply does is harden Pharaoh in his nature by giving him completely over to his sin. So let's keep reading. Verse 4, Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring, uh, bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Those are the um, ten plagues that are about to happen coming right after our text. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron 
did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So if we were to jump back to chapter 5, in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they say, um, let, let the people of Israel go. And Pharaoh responds with this question, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Listen, I, 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 Moses, Aaron, I know you guys know this. I am the king of Egypt. I don't obey. People obey me. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And here God is saying, when I am through, when I am through delivering Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians, not only will Pharaoh know, but the people of Egypt will know that I am the Lord. There will be no confusion over who the true king of kings is in the land of Egypt. When I put my sovereign power on display in the deliverance of Egypt, there will be no confusion over who the true king is. They will know that I am the Lord. And now, Moses, I am going to send you back to Pharaoh because I'm going to send you back to, to, to give you a glimpse, a preamble into what is about to happen. And in giving you this preamble, this glimpse, I'm going to take you to the heart, the heart of the Exodus story. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says it to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that I may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron, not Aaron. That's not his name. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And so Moses, Moses goes with Aaron to Pharaoh, and they throw their staff down, and their staff becomes a serpent. And then Pharaoh calls his magicians, and he brings them over, and they do the same. But then Aaron's staff swallows up their staffs, and seeing this, Pharaoh's heart becomes a little harder. The question is why? Why, why would Pharaoh, seeing this, why would his heart grow a little harder? And to answer that, we need to talk about what the staff and the serpent symbolized, and then who these magicians were. So the staff, this symbolized someone's authority in Egypt. So staff was a symbol of your authority in Egypt, but then the serpent, the serpent symbolized Egypt's authority in the world. So in the staff and the serpent, you have a symbol of somebody's authority in Egypt, and then you have a symbol of Egypt's authority in the world. It's why um, depicted, listen to this, depicted on the front of the king's crown was an enraged female cobra or serpent. This was thought by the Egyptians to be energized with divine sovereignty and potency. It was considered the emblem of Pharaoh's power, symbolized his divinity and majesty. And so in the staff, and the casting down, throwing down of the staff, you have a challenge to Pharaoh's authority in Egypt. But then in the serpent, you have a challenge to Egypt's authority in the world. And when Aaron's staff swallows their staffs, this is a statement of authority. This is a statement of who is the greater authority both in Egypt and in the world. But then there were these magicians. These magicians. These were not sleight-of-hand, card-trick, um, America's-got-talent guys. 
although I find them incredibly talented. These, these were religious priests who were known to perform supernatural feats. The ancient Egyptian literature is just chock full of them. One of the more famous stories is about one of them making a wax crocodile, tossing it into the lake, and then becoming a living crocodile. I'm not saying it happened. I'm saying that's all over the Egyptian literature. This is who they were. Why does it matter that we know that these were religious priests? Because in this, it's going to take us into the heart of the Exodus story. The Exodus story that is asking and answering a question, whose God is supreme? Whose God is the king above kings? Whose God is supreme? And I want to let the commentator answer it because I can't say it better than this. Exodus 7, 8 through 13 also defines for the reader the true issue at stake in the entire Exodus struggle. The hostilities are not primarily between Moses and Pharaoh or, for that matter, between Israel and Egypt. What the serpent contest portrays is a heavenly combat, a war between the God of Israel and the deities of Egypt. For the biblical writer, the episode was a matter of theology. It was a question of who was the one true God and who was sovereign over the operation of the universe and whose will would come to pass in heaven and on earth. The serpent drama introduces us to, the, to that theological issue in grand form. Yahweh, God of Israel, engages Pharaoh, the God of Egypt, in a contest of power and will. See, the central theological issue in Exodus is this, whose God is the true God? Whose God is the true God? Which leads us to the next question, which God do you worship? Which God do you worship? Who or what do you worship? Because listen, whether it's the Egyptians, Pharaoh, the Israelites, or us, humanity was made to worship. We were made to worship. We were hardwired to worship. It's why it's not uncommon for you to hear about a couple who um, are dating, engaged, and to hear one of them say, oh, he just worships her or she just worships him. We are made to worship and here's the thing, when you worship any other God or you worship anything else as God, your heart is growing softer to the idol and your heart will be growing harder to the one true God every single time. And when you see that the fundamental issue in Exodus is who or what do you worship, then you can see that this passage about an Egyptian king with a hardened heart is not just for Egyptian kings. It is also for Israel. Us too, but we're still not there yet. Israel first. Look at Psalm 95, verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our true God. He is our God, and we are, his, we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, listen to this language, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Did you catch that language in the middle of it? Do not harden your hearts. Israel, do not harden your hearts. This is the language of the Exodus getting picked up and applied to Israel. But here's what's interesting. This is language used of Pharaoh, but this is not a reference back to Pharaoh. 
This is a reference back to Exodus 17, not 7, our passage 17. And so what happens between Exodus 7 and 17? Well, here's what happens. The ten plagues, God then delivers Israel out of the hands of the Egyptian. They pass through the Red Sea. Exodus 15, they burst forth in song of redemption. Exodus 16, bread literally falls from heaven. It, it Most literally, it says bread rains from heaven. Not Benjamin's raining from heaven, but bread rains from heaven. And one chapter later, Exodus 17, Israel is running out of water. And you know what they say to Moses? They say, did you bring us out here to kill us? Did you deliver us out of Egypt just to kill us with thirst? And this, this lack of trust, this lack of trust is called hardness of heart in Israel. That's why Moses said, 17.7, and he, Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Exodus 95 uses the language of Pharaoh to describe the hardness of heart in Israel. In the immediate aftermath of all that God had done and all that they had seen him do, delivering them out of the hands of the Egyptians, in Exodus 17, they immediately start to distrust God. And here's what I find incredibly interesting. Did you know Psalm 95 was used in Israel's worship? When they would gather together, Psalm 95 was part of their liturgy. It was a repetitive refrain in their worship when they gathered together. This refrain, do not harden your hearts, do not be like the Exodus generation, was something they heard rhythmically over and over and over. It was repeated weekly. The question is why? Why would this be repeated over and over in the nation of Israel? Here's why. Because they, like all of us, had hearts that were prone to wander. Hearts that were prone to trust idols and to distrust God. Hearts prone to trust idols and to distrust God, which is why one theologian said that Psalm 95 could essentially be called a prophetic liturgy, where, where the people are called to worship God and soften their hearts to His voice. You see, the point of a repetitive liturgy is to make God's voice the loudest voice in your life. It's the point of that communal habit. And so Psalm 95 picks up on Exodus language and applies it to the nation of Israel because they needed to hear it. But it wasn't just them who needed to hear it, it was also us. How do we know? Because Psalm 95 gets quoted in Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." So this is the author of Hebrews quoting Psalm 95 and applying it to the church, using the failure of the Exodus generation to give a warning to the church. What is the warning? Let's keep reading. Verse 12, take care, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. Take care, brothers. Take care, lest there be in any of you 
an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened, hardened, there it is again, by the deceitfulness of sin. Take care, brothers and sisters, take care, take care, lest there be in any of you a heart that buys in and is deceived by sin and you fall away. The word fall away, it's the word to apostatize. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Why this warning again in Hebrews 3? Isn't Psalm 95 enough? Why? Because we have hearts that are prone to wander. We just do. We have hearts that are prone to wander. And here's how it happens through the deceitfulness of sin. Through the deceitfulness of sin. To be deceived by sin is to buy the idol's lie. To buy the lie that if I want the life that I really want, I need Jesus plus something else. I need Jesus plus serious bank account. I need Jesus plus great sex life. I need Jesus plus marriage. I need Jesus plus something to have the life that I really want. It's to buy the lie. The money, sex, power, acceptance, this is what I need to get the life that I really want. And when my heart gets softened to an idol, it grows harder to Jesus every single time. And here's the thing about idols, they work slow. No one falls away overnight. I, I have almost never, never had a conversation with somebody who fell away, who walked away from the faith that said, you know, I, mean, I just woke up on a Tuesday morning and I started to have some wrestles. By Tuesday night, I knew I was done. It happens slow. You drift away. You don't run away. And so it says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, but exhort one another to what? Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hold firm to your original confidence to the end, but confidence in what? That the death and resurrection of Jesus gives me the life that I want, and that He is that life. That He is the life that I want. And so, how? How, how do we then, if we are here, to take care lest any of us fall away, hold firm to our original confidence to the end? How do we do this? How do I make sure that my heart is continually being molded by Jesus and not molded by idols? How do I do this? Well, uh, there are probably a hundred things we could talk about. I want to talk about two things that we could learn from Psalm 95 and Exodus 3. Here they are. The first one, the first one is that this is a distinctly communal call. Whether it is what they did in Israel in their weekly worship, or if it is the exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, this is a distinctly communal call. You are not meant to do this alone. You are not meant to try to learn to follow Jesus in isolation apart from the larger community who love him, love you. You are not meant to do this alone. We talk about that one a lot, and so I'm going to move on to the second one. Here's the second one. Our communal habits matter. Our communal habits matter. What we do together matters. These are the living liturgies of our lives. What we do together shapes our loves. Shapes our loves. It molds us. James K. A. Smith, which if you've never heard that name, 
Um, you, you should get every book he has ever written and read it. It's outstanding. But James K. Smith says that love is a habit, and discipleship is the rehabituation of our loves. It is the rehabituation of our loves. It's an orienting of our lives in such a way that it aims our loves towards God. And so what are two communal habits? Here's one. Around here, here's one. One is what we're doing right now. Corporate worship, Sunday gatherings, everything that we do in here on Sundays, from our liturgy to our sermon to our song to prayer to the communion table, everything that we do is oriented to aim our loves away from our idols and toward Jesus. It's meant to shape our loves. It's meant to form our loves. Listen, we, the, the goal is not that you would come in and learn. The goal is not that you would come in and just enjoy the music. The goal is not that you would come in and like our liturgy or the order of our worship. The goal is that we would come in and through all of these things, of course we want you to learn and to like our music and to enjoy the liturgy, but the goal of them all is that we would aim our loves, our aims, our loves would be redirected toward Christ away from our idols. That this would be formative in shaping our loves and rehabituating our loves, but it can't end on Sundays, which is why our parishes have to be honest communities where we're honest about where our hearts are prone to wander to so that people can speak in and exhort us away from our idols back to Jesus. It's why we pray together, we read the scriptures together, we laugh and we cry together, and we do so to aim our loves to help one another redirect our loves from our idols onto Jesus. And listen, I need your help. I need your help. I need others to help. I need the church to help me redirect and shape my loves, and you need that help too. If you think you don't need the help of others, you are utterly fooling yourself. We need the help of others. We need the church, this community, this family to help shape our loves together because, listen, everything that we do is formative. Everything that we do together, it's formative. It shapes us. It molds us. Our communal rhythms matter. Our communal rhythms will move us toward Jesus or they will move us away from Jesus. Listen, if, if we just got practical, this is obvious, right? I'm, my, I'm married to my wife, Amanda. Our communal rhythms together and what we do with others over time will either strengthen and enrich our marriage or it will undercut our marriage. My communal rhythms with my wife will lead our marriage into deeper beauty or it will lead us apart. The same thing is true here. Our communal rhythms matter. It's why rhythmically in Israel's worship, they said, do not harden your hearts. It's why Hebrews 3 said to the church at large, exhort one another. Exhort one another. Because listen, if you, if you pull away, if you pull away from the church, you will drift away from Jesus every single time. If you pull away, you will drift away. What we do together matters. It shapes our loves. It forms us. What we do is either forming and molding our hearts to Jesus, or it's molding it to an idol. What we do together matters. Sojourn, do not harden your hearts.
Let's keep our communal rhythms, molding our hearts, shaping our hearts, aiming our hearts, reorienting our loves toward Jesus. And let's keep God's voice, the loudest voice in our life. Let's pray. Father, you, you put warnings in your scriptures because you knew that we needed warnings from your scriptures. Father, I, I pray right now that if there are any of us in here who are on the verge of starting to drift or are drifting, I pray that you would take your word by your spirit amplified in our life and you would pull them back. I pray that we would think richly and deeply about our communal habits around here as a community, that our communal habits would always be thought and they would mold our love, direct our love, shape our love toward you, toward the work of your Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us, grow us, mold us. We need you to do it. We're asking you to do it. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen.